AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 13th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today I'm joined on the couch by Stan Nerlov. Uh, nice to have you back on the show, Stan. How's uh, it thank going? Thank you. Nice to be back. I'm doing well. How are you, John? All right, and I know you've got an interesting story that ties in with a lot of the malware reverse engineering you do uh, uh, yes. for the show today. Okay. Can't wait to talk and about. also on the couch, we have Matt Kaiser. How's it hey, going? Matt, how's it going? A lot of stories from you as well, which we're going to jump into uh, momentarily. And I'm John Hogaboom. Uh, thanks for joining the show. And let's jump into the first story which is one that you're looking at, Matt, uh, regarding uh, VDOS operators. And I guess there was some kind of, uh, well, why don't you just tell me all about it? All right, it. so uh, <laughs> those of us who watch the show a lot know we like reading stories from Krebs on security. And he has a real, real kicker this week. Uh, the, the database from a popular booter stressor right. DDoS service called VDOS was uh, leaked and the operators, or at least the alleged operators, have been arrested in Israel. So the interesting thing about it is that these guys have been running this for about two years, and from the limited database dump that he got, which is about a time frame, I want to say, from March 2016 to April 2016, July 2016. So a few months. A couple of months. Right. The, if, if the data is correct, it sounds like they made about $600,000 in that month in that section of time alone. Oh, really? Uh, the service has been up and since had been operating since 2012. So, if you extrapolate back, it's a significant amount of money being made by this service. Hmm. Now, this is one of those services that claims to be a legitimate stressor tool. Only use it on your own website. Right, right. But the database shows that most users were not doing that. They were using it to attack other people. Uh, I've actually poked around in, the, in the, the database itself, which has been released, so you can see who attacked who, when, with what kind of traffic. Uh, and it's interesting, the handles that are being used, like the, the, the logins for the site, uh, you, go, you Google a couple of these guys and you realize that they're also, they consider themselves, you know, pro-gamers types, mm -hmm. people who, you know, have a reason to, to cheat at online gaming and potentially DDoS their opponents in an attempt to get an edge. Right. So I found that really interesting. Krebs estimates that the amount of traffic that's been sent from this service has been about 8.81, what he calls DDoS years of traffic. So you take a certain duration of the attack and multiply it by the number of participants in said attack mm -hmm. to get the total DDoS length of time of the attack. So 8.81 years, you know, it hasn't been around for 8.81 years, but enough bots are part of the network and enough time has been spent attacking that you could say if you put it all end to end, that much time. And that's okay. again only for the time period that was in the leak. Right. So right. there's probably a considerable amount more. Was that, that eight years just for the two or three months of data they had? Yes. Or are they extrapolating to say I since believe that was just for that time period. Okay. Which is again significant. Right. So there's actually two stories on Krebs for this one. First was the release of the database and Krebs doing a little bit of his own doxing, pointing to clues that suggested these two people from Israel were behind the attacks, and now these folks have been arrested. It turns out that the um, Poodle Stressor uh, had apparently been using this system as the basis for their service. Mm -hmm. So sort of almost like a reseller agreement, where all of their requests would be funneled through the API to VDOS, and VDOS would actually implement the attack. There's suggestions that Shenron, which is also associated with Lizard Squad, was doing right. the same kind of thing. One interesting thing to come out of this, which I think I'd like to discuss with you guys and get your take on, is that one of the victims, one of the final victims of this service before it was shut down, took an interesting action. They were under attack, and they decided in order to reroute that traffic, they were actually going to perform BGP hijacking and change the routes to and from that network so that traffic would not reach so them. So they were announcing routes? Yes, the victims decided as a last-ditch effort to announce routes. And it's been somewhat controversial. I wanted to know what you would think. If you were play, if you were a network admin and you were placed in that situation, do you think it's... Well, I guess it depends. And I'd like to understand how they implemented that more. If it was, you know, if it's a, a large network that they have of their own, like they're an ISP or something, and they're internally announcing, like black-holing that route, 
um, that would be one thing, as long as they don't announce it out to the internet to say that, hey, in order to get to this, you know, to or from this BGP um, ASN, you're going to go through us. That would really be hijacking. Yep. But if they're just saying, I'm kind of black holing this within my own network, my larger network, then that, I wouldn't think that that's a problem. Um, because you're not leaking it out to the rest of the internet to say right. that I'm redirecting everybody else's traffic that's outside of me into me so I can inspect it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what they were I, doing exactly? So I've seen postings on Nanog, which is a, a North American network operators group. Right. Um, and if it made it to Nanog, I doubt that it was internal only. I believe that they were actually right. So other people doing probably real, observed that they yeah. were bleeding out those uh, routes, routes yeah. somehow. Um, interesting. I mean, it's an interesting tactic. I don't. I can't say that I would say it's appropriate for everybody to use, but like I said, you said, you know, there there are situations in which you can do it internally to get some sort of advantage. So. Yeah, and there actually is. Um, I wish I could remember the name of them. There is kind of a group of people, uh, like a community that started up to kind of share um, routing information that's of the same nature to BGP black hole, mm -hmm. like bad actors as a community, but you only do it within your own respect. So you basically get like a BGP black hole list. I forget the name of the group that's been working on this. Um, there's a bunch of, bunch of large ISPs are participating uh, in that grouping, but it's a little bit different than what you're saying. Um, it's more, you know, in my own internal network, I'm saying that this is no good. I don't want to go there anymore, uh, which helps, you know, mitigate, especially if one provider seeing it and they see that we're getting to DDoS and they're highly reliable and trusted and then the other providers kind of follow suit, it can really kind of quiesce all that traffic across the internet, especially if you get a lot of tier one ISPs involved. They're not doing anything to like hijack routes necessarily. You're only doing it within your own network, which kind of can stop it um, from being a problem elsewhere, uh, especially if it's within your own network. So uh, interesting uh, story. And um, uh, yeah, I'd like to find out more about exactly what they were doing with that defensive BGP hijacking, because that doesn't sound, it sounds a little fishy to me, uh, that they would even be able to do that, because uh, it depends on how your trust relationship is set up with your next, you know, whoever you peer out with. So that's kind of interesting that they would allow that. All right, so uh, let's move on to the next story, which is also one that you're looking at, Matt. And um, I don't really know much about this one, so I'm going to let you fill me in. but. House of Keys and some nine months later kind of follow up on this one? Sure. So um, there's a group called SEC Consult. And about nine months ago, they did the recent research showing that a number of IoT devices were reusing the same cryptographic certificates and keys um, across the board. So say if I, I produce a particular model of router, mm -hmm. you know, the, the problem is that if you manufacture that router and you put the same keys on all of them, uh, anybody who goes and investigates the firmware for that router can pull out those keys and then use those keys to inspect the traffic or to uh, impersonate the device. So is this the HTTPS or is it it's like the HTTPS, SSH? SSH, all of these things. Uh, Imagine the same config. The, the, the root problem is probably that the same, the config is the same for most of these devices. Right, right, right. Um, but then it applies to things like secret keys. Right. So um, they did this research about nine months ago. They did a follow-up in the last week uh, Stefan uh, Wiebeck, I hope I'm saying that right, did more research and found that there was an increase in the number of devices doing this actually increased by 40%, despite the fact that they had put out this alert and let people know that this is a problem. Right, so even though he made people aware that, hey, you're all reusing the same keys across all these devices, people just kept doing it anyway. Right. So, the, yeah, so manufacturers are still... Continuing to be a problem. Exactly. Right. Uh, so the number is now up to 4.5 million individual devices that they've discovered through their scanning that are sharing these. And it's, it's fairly simple. You know, you can connect over SSH or HTTPS, and as part of that handshake, the certificate information is provided to you. And then you can just take a look at the fingerprint and say, I know that this is this unique, you know, right, certificate right. or key. And then you can start building a list of who has what. So really what that... I mean, you would still have to be in the middle of a conversation in order to intercept the traffic mm -hmm. and then be able to decode it. True. Which is not trivial necessarily, no. depending on where you're, you're, you know, where you're sitting relative to that traffic happening. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess what's the other, like, is there another angle here? Of... Well, you can also impersonate. I mean, if you have those secret keys, you can install them and listen 
And if someone is expecting to be talking to a particular device and they've already said, well, um, in my, you know, say I'm using Putty and I've already connected mm -hmm. to this SSH server once and I have this fingerprint from the key. Right, you're not going to get a warning or right. anything. Right, exactly. So it has, it has some implications. So they've released the updated data on GitHub. Their recommendations at the end of the article are particularly interesting. They have recommendations for device manufacturers, ISPs, and users. Different things you can do uh, to improve the situation, obviously, for manufacturers. Anytime you generate keys for, you know, anytime you push firmware to a device, you know, you could generate a brand new key and push it to each one. Mm -hmm. Just so that it's, you know, they might be self-signed, they might be signed for real with a whole chain of um, trust. I'm forgetting the right word for it. But, you know, do something different so that it's not as trivial to, for someone to perform these right. attacks. But then as we know, when, if they're gonna push firmware, not that, first of all, who updates their router, right? As we found out, a lot of people aren't doing it, which I recommend you do do, but a lot of people don't. But then when you do, if you're gonna regenerate keys, now when you go to connect to it, it's gonna give you that warning. It says, hey, this is not the right key anymore. And you're gonna be like, oh, I'm excited. Well, hopefully you'll have that response. Well, the other, the other side of it as well, the ISP section was things like, if you have some sort of remote interface that allows someone to log in remotely and, and administer the device, um, there are things they're suggesting like, putting that on a separate VLAN. So if you're like a cable modem company or right. a cable provider, make sure that only the hosts that need to talk to that administrative interface can talk to that administrative interface. Right. Um, the last section is for users, and the suggestions are, if you can, change these keys. But they fully admit that most users will, one, never read this research, right. and if they do, two, they may not even have the ability to change those keys. Because you know, like we like we know, IoT devices you'll flash the firmware, um, but you may not have a really good way of updating the the base config. Because you know, unpacking a firmware and modifying it and repacking it is also it takes a little bit of of knowledge, as well. Right. So it, the the suggestions may be out of the range of the common user, but they are correct suggestions. Yes, I would agree. So it is correct. Also, I don't know that this is like. To me, it's not like I'm just gonna be able to get into this router. Well, first of all, we already know that there's a lot of these devices out there, because we talk about it all the time, these mm -hmm. IoT-based devices that have all these, like you're saying, certificates that are the same, SSH keys that are the same. But the bigger problem is, is people are putting them out on the network, attaching the internet, they're not changing the passwords yep. to something other than the default one you know, provided by the, the vendor. They're not updating the devices this kind of thing, are they actually gonna, you know, if they're already not doing some of the real basic level of security uh, to protect their device, I'd be a little skeptical that a lot of people are gonna take advantage of, you know, this guy's research. Not to say it's not valid research, it is, but it also, like I said, you would need to be in the middle of the conversation to really take advantage of any of this. Basically, what, he, what he's discovered is he's turned um, all of this encrypted traffic into basically clear net. So SSH yeah. has become Telnet, and HTTPS has become HTTP at yep. this point. So they're basically not really doing much for somebody who could be in the middle of that conversation, um, which if you're a rogue proxy server or something like that, you could. Um, or say you're the, the edge of a, a country that has a great right. or great firewall. Right, right. You know what I'm saying. Right. But then I guess when, well, uh, we're probably digressing a little bit a little too bit. much. You know, are you going to cross country boundaries when you're trying to manage your own router or whatnot, you know, usually a lot of these devices are managed by within the country that they're in, usually you would think. But people expose them on the internet all the time, so. Uh, something to be aware of, uh, nevertheless. I mean, it is valid, and we know that there's tons of these devices out there. We're gonna talk about it in the internet weather, which we do every week anyway, but um, it's just, it's a very frustrating problem in my opinion, because, you know, as much as we talk about this, and other security people talk about this type of stuff. Doesn't seem like anybody else is listening, except the security guys. <laughs> so um, anyway, let's uh, move along on that down note. Let's maybe Stan can energize us with uh, some of this other stuff related to IDA Pro. So there's something, some yeah. actor set figured so, out a way to prevent you from reverse engineering their, their uh, code. They make it a little bit more challenging, I would say. So it's a great article uh, by Palo Alto, uh, Unit 42. Mm -hmm. So in their blog, they, uh, they discovered uh, something interesting. So this, I love these kinds of stories, by the way, because this is uh, near and dear to my heart. I always think of uh, if I was a bad guy, 
what would I do? Uh, and this is one of those interesting bad guy techniques that they used. So uh, you may know that uh, every DLL, it has this uh, functionality that it exposes. Right. And it names those functions something, you know, like uh, do print or message box or something like that. And for a programmer, that's how they know the functionality delivered by DLL. And so DLLs have that or numbers. So for the functions, they have ordinals or function names. So the bad guys uh, were like, hey, what if we just blank out the function names, I guess? What would happen? And so when you look at it at a DLL, then you, you just won't see the names of the functions. So that, first of all, that, that kind of hurts you in being able to like figure out what the, the right. purpose What's of the, the function is. Function, purpose right. of the function is, yeah. Because usually the name gives it away, generally. Uh, not always. And then uh, the other thing is, in Ida Pro, apparently, if you load up a DLL where the functions were blanked out this way, in one of the tabs or one of the views, you wouldn't see the exported function list. They wouldn't okay. appear in that view. So that was a bug in Ida Pro. So that was a bug in Ida Pro, and it was and interesting. Just for other people's reference, if you're not familiar, Ida Pro is like a software utility to help you reverse engineer executables. So you yeah. can take a binary compiled executable and reverse engineer it back to something that you can maybe understand a little bit better as real code. Exactly. Okay. Because some people might not know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry because this is something I kind of live and use all right, the time. Right, I know all you're, the time. you're always in there you know, uh, week after yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so good point, John. So uh, basically, I thought it was a clever trick. You know, it won't stop you from using Ida Pro um, because you'd still be able, there's other views where you could have seen the information or used it. It was one of those clever techniques. Now they went back and they were like, "Well, how did the bad, you know, how did the bad guys come up with this? Did they do like some sort of like Ida Pro research, or did they, you know, I don't think they can answer this question. Like, what were the bad guys thinking? But they went to the release notes of Ida Pro and they noticed that in version like A, whatever, they they had this bug, and version B it was fixed. So they looked at the the date of when that was released and the date when the malware was observed was two days later. So they're thinking, uh, hey, maybe... So they're paying attention paying to what it, yeah. bugs are being patched in Ida Pro. Exactly. So that they could take advantage of... And this was not just your typical malware no. type of author. This was, this was a, a nation-state actor. Malware probably. that they associated with an APT threat actor. Um, in this case, they call them uh, the Dukes. APT29, I think, Cozy Bear. Right. These are all the names associated with this threat actor group. Uh, but, you know, anybody could have come up with that. Actually, as I was reading this, I was thinking back to my days as a Padawan in information security. And Do you want to explain what a Padawan is? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you. <laughs> uh, I'll let the users look that up. Uh, so, basically, when I was just starting out uh, in information security, I, I was very interested in reverse engineering, things like that. So one of my side projects was to actually take a DLL and figure out, you know, what are the export sections, what are the function names and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, I'm like, huh, what if they were blank? You know, well, how would I handle that case? Uh, so it's interesting now to see that somebody else... Can you actually have uh, functions that all have the same name of blank? Um, Even though they have different ordinal values. Yeah, I'm not sure. That, that would be an interesting test yeah, case to know. run. That's, I think I you, can, you also don't have to <laughs> define a name. So the name doesn't even have to exist uh, okay. as long as there's an ordinal number that you export. And that's what these guys were doing. Okay. So you can even have functions in your DLL that are not exposed, that if you knew where they were, uh, you could load them up. But the, the, the system that's in the DLL for exporting them just makes it easier to write programs to call the functionality. Right, right. So like Windows will handle all that for you. I know it's getting too technical. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, that uh, makes sense. So basically, uh, what I thought was interesting from this is, you know, the bad guys, they're always paying attention, just as the good guys are, right? Just as we have to always stay up to date and we always have to pay attention to all the news and the security events, the bad guys are also paying attention. And we kind of have to know what they're doing. And also, I thought it was interesting that they were able to so quickly take action. You know, they, they saw this release notes, two days later, they're already using malware that's kind of using this technique. Now it is very specific to Ida Pro, you know, like uh, other tools were probably not having this problem uh, or, you know, would exhibit different behaviors. It probably has to do with the, the tool, but it's interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting observation. It also reminded me of, uh, again, when I was uh, just starting out, uh, Halvar Flake, he's like the guy who is, 
just the man at reverse engineering and using Ida Pro and just understanding like binary and x86. So they had a little competition. He put together a little HackMe file. So HackMe is like just for educational purposes. It's a computer mm -hmm. program. You try to reverse engineer, see how it works. So apparently he, he created one that if you loaded it up in Ida Pro, it would actually crash Ida Pro. Okay. So that was like, he was so advanced in knowing how Ida Pro works that just loading the file would crash it. And so as defenders... At least it wasn't a remote code execution but type it, bug, right? But it could have been. <laughs> could have been, right? Um, which, which would be kind of scary, right? Yeah, and you always have to be careful with that. So that's why as defenders, we always have to pay attention to that. And we also have to keep our tools up to date and we have to take precautions because the analysis tools themselves can become a vector of infection uh, you know, depending on the malware you're loading. You're, you're already dealing with code that's trying to do something malicious. And stuff like this always reminds me of that FireEye article from like maybe a few months ago where, uh, you know, how the FireEye devices work. If you recall, mm -hmm. they just passively tap and execute malware in a sandbox. Well, they had uh, a technique, uh, I guess these bad guys, that they would send a specific malware binary that the FireEye would try to run in the sandbox and the malware would be able to like escape the sandbox and get itself in the whitelist or something like that. Right, so right. that class of bugs is very interesting to me where you're attacking the defense mechanisms themselves. Right. So this is just one of those. What well, also reminds me, I think you had another sample you had looked at maybe last year or something where it, um, what did it do? Like disable the network interface? Yes. Oh, so yeah, yeah. when the malware analysis, like you're running this sample in a malware analysis environment, and it disconnected the network interface. So I think something happened there where well, it like, the stopped the processing or something, right? Yeah, I yeah. think the way Cuckoo works, uh, which is one of the sandbox uh, that was impacted by this, is it collects telemetry on the malware, how it's working. And at the time, I think Cuckoo worked by you know, opening up a network socket to some kind of reporting server and sending all this telemetry there. Well, the malware would run and would shut down the network interface card and then restart it a few seconds later. But by right. doing that, it would disconnect the reporting framework uh, from the telemetry gathering program. Right. And so basically your analysis would fail, your automated analysis, and you wouldn't know, like, oh, so I don't know what happened. Right, you'd just be like, oh, whatever, what was yeah, no what was information. <laughs> what was interesting about that is how it presented itself in the sandbox results, and you never usually see this. It's like, oh, it's an error. Why would there be an error in the sandbox? You know, I've never, you know, so it's pretty uh, unique to see that. But again, I wonder, you know, not that we know, but that was an interesting technique where I wonder if whoever, you know, made their malware do that, if they realized we're doing this intentionally because we know it breaks some of these automated malware analysis yeah. environments. They would know? almost have to for that one. And you know what was interesting about that malware sample is that it was very simple. So in terms of reverse engineering it, it was not that difficult. There were not too many obfuscation uh, techniques. You could have just easily loaded that one up into, let's say, Ida Pro and seen a lot of the functionality very quickly. Uh, and once you knew where to look, you didn't even have to load it up into Ida Pro anymore. You could have just extracted what you needed from the samples. Right. Uh, but uh, so it was interesting to me that they used that technique specific to like dynamic sandbox environments and things. Right. Like that. Right. So yeah, they, I think they they knew what they were dealing with, but they didn't take all the possible precautions they could have right. in that case. Right. Yes. Yeah, so they need to do that. Plus, they need to have function names in their DLLs that are just blanks. Blank. Plus, right. they need Plus. to obfuscate it and pack it and everything. Away. I don't think we're giving away too many secrets. <laughs> anyway, interesting uh, story. I mean, like you said, the tools that a lot of the um, security analyst type engineers use to help analyze this type of stuff, um, they are not without, you know, these bad actors know that this is what people are going to go to when they're going to try to figure out how did their sample work. Yep. So um, it's something to consider, um, especially the ones that worry me most. So like Ida Pro, things like that, where you're, even Wireshark. I know there have oh, been yeah. some buffer overflows for Wireshark. So it makes me a little like nervous sometimes. You think that you're just opening something up that's a read-only or it's static. It's not going to actually do anything but you might be able to get some kind of buffer overflow curve, just like any other application you know, that somebody writes. Right. Um, so, uh, good story, thanks. 
Um, so next story up, uh, snagging creds from locked machines. Yeah. This one you were looking at, Matt. This is sounds cool. interesting. I, I kind of like the the hacks that you can bring a device and use the physical device for whatever you're doing. You know, laptops are all right, but pulling something out of your pocket and, and using it like a tool is has always been kind of cool to me. Right. So uh, Rob Four, also known as Mubix, came up with this attack. It's a combination of a couple other ideas. Uh, but the general idea is you take one of two devices, the LAN Turtle, which I think is a Hack 5 special device. It's, it behaves like an Ethernet adapter, so a okay. USB to Ethernet adapter, but it's also running its own network stuff. So instead of just being an adapter, it's got a little server on there, and you can do some cool stuff with it. Oh, also, so like if you're going to, you could actually talk to whatever the little server is over the network. Right. So it's like, it's all built in. That's interesting. I think it's, it's meant as a device you kind of leave behind, or like you plug it in, and it looks like it's a USB to Ethernet adapter, but it's got more in it. Okay. for certain attacks. Hmm. Uh, but the, also, the other one they've done it with is the USB Armory, which okay. is a really interesting little device, kind of expensive, but it's just a little USB stick that's programmable. It has, you can run Linux on it. You can do a bunch of really cool stuff. And those are the two that he tested it on. And then someone else has said that you can do it with a Raspberry Pi Zero, and I'd like to try doing that one of these weekends. But let me get to the attack. Okay. The attack is you plug in a USB device, and the USB device tells the computer, I am a USB to Ethernet adapter. And because okay. USB is plug and play, you know, Windows will say, okay, great, let me just load the drivers for that and treat you like, a, uh, like an Ethernet adapter. And mm -hmm. most laptops, if you're using Wi-Fi and you plug in an Ethernet adapter of any kind, it says, great, that sounds like a better way to reach the Internet. Let me start to send my traffic over the wired connection right. rather than the wireless yeah, most one. Most will automatically go to Ethernet if it's available. Yep. Right. And the next thing it'll do is it'll try DHCP. Now, this device that you've, you've d created will run its own DHCP server, respond, oh, okay. and say, hey, by the way, you should probably be using this WPAD file, which is the Windows Auto Proxy configuration file, right. and say, this is where you need to go to get all your stuff on the network. Right. So then your laptop will say, great, let me keep doing that other stuff that I usually do. Start connecting to the network shares, start talking to websites or logging into email, or all the traffic that was going over the Wi-Fi where your computer was locked, will start going through here. And there's right. a software called Responder, which was developed specifically to listen on all these common ports and talk those and languages. That those types of services. And accept any credentials sent to them and log them. Uh, okay. Right. So just by plugging this device into the computer, you can potentially capture credentials for SMB, MSQL, LDAP. LDAP's mm -hmm. kind of a problem, right? And then it's also got listeners for FTP, POP3, and things like that. So you can capture a lot of credentials just by plugging something in and Especially email, I could see, like right away, your email client is going to immediately flip over and start trying to talk to that. Yep. The one yeah. I think that's probably most concerning is, is LDAP, because usually if you're on a Windows domain, that's how you're going to be seeing right, those sort right, of credentials. Right, right. Now, it doesn't crack them on the device, and usually these devices are somewhat slow, but it does save it off, so you can plug it in for a couple of seconds, unplug it, bring it home, and start cracking on whatever cracking right, software you've got. Right, and they're probably none the wiser, whoever's machine that was. Yep. Interesting. So that's the attack. And it's, I think it's pretty ingenious. Um, in terms of defending against it, I think the only thing you could really do is set up some sort of policy or some sort of software that prevents plug-and-play devices yeah. when the laptop is locked. Or even oh, in general. Like yeah. if, you're, if you've got a corporate deployment, you can say, I'm not going to accept any more USC devices besides, except for the ones that I'm whitelisting specifically. You could do that. Now, Right. If I think it, there was something. I think we covered a story about like signing USB devices or something. Like there was a way to like, just like you can sign code. Mm -hmm. I think there were somebody who's coming up with some standard to sign USB. Maybe it's in USB three or one of these new ones. Oh, it might be. Yeah. Where like maybe you could actually in your device say I'm allowing these USB devices that are signed by this vendor or whatever. I don't know how that really protects you necessarily. Okay. But the interesting thing to me is, you know, in the, you know, five, you know, go back five, six years ago, um, the Windows auto run, you could just stick a thumb drive in. And it would load as software. a regular yep. storage device and you could potentially um, compromise a machine infected with malware. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of Microsoft's done a lot to help prevent that so that you can't really do that in modern versions of Windows as, as easily or at all, I don't think, anymore. But this is like, basically, you know, once Microsoft shut this off, all the guys started to think, uh, how can we come up with a new way to do this? Same kind of thing. How can I steal credentials 
or otherwise compromise the asset. So that's an interesting way um, mm -hmm. that I hadn't thought about before. So. Now, as, as processing power gets better, or maybe there's another way to do this, but the real soup to nuts attack would be you get this device, you plug it in, and either it calls home wirelessly or over a cell, you know, this might, this requires another device. Right. But, you know, you plug in as an Ethernet adapter, you get the creds you need, you somehow get them cracked either locally or across the network, and then your USB device, which was lying all the time and saying it was an Ethernet adapter, says, okay, I'm gonna disconnect. I'm gonna reconnect as a human interface device, a keyboard. Oh. And I'm going to hit the correct keys to log into Windows for you. Hmm. Now that would be the, you plug it in, you wait a couple minutes, and you're physically into the box. Okay. That would be a heck of a thing. Those movies where they connect some device and the digits just start rolling <laughs> yeah. through yeah. and boom, they're in. Right, exactly. <laughs> Usually in like less than 30 seconds. I mean, I think it's achievable. I think it might take longer than you know, it, it's limited Depends by the, the longer, exactly. It takes, how long it takes to crack that password, but it's probably doable at this point. Yeah, interesting. That's very clever, I, I, yeah, this is, it's really, really clever. You can do man in the middle attacks possibly too, if you had some kind of like a network right. back end to this. Right, if, if you were actually were piping the, the network yeah. traffic through there, sure. Right, as opposed to just capturing it off, you could actually yeah. let it go by and through or proxy it in some way. Yeah, it's so clever. Um, yeah. You could, yeah, you could, uh, I also got to wonder how many times you need to use a real USB to Ethernet device. I think most users probably won't encounter one. Not anymore. It used to be popular like maybe a few years ago. Oh, well, with, with netbooks and the slim laptops, the ones that were, you know, they're taking out of the hardware to make it the lightest laptop you can get, you know, putting back that kind of functionality would require exactly one of those kinds of devices. Right, right. All right, interesting. Uh, it's a good one to be aware of, for sure, right? But whether, hopefully you never run into that situation, but, and it sounds like this is more research than actual people um, practicing this type of thing. It's only thing. been out for about a week, You're but right. I, I think the Land Turtle, the guys at Hack5 have actually rolled a patch into their device to do the same attack automatically, so no one has to configure it. It just exists mm. now. Right, so, so in theory, if you wanted to, or if somebody wanted to, they could perhaps leverage this against you. So, but we always say, you know, physical access to the device mm -hmm. is um, basically it's game over. If, if I have physical access to the device, even for some small period of time, there's a much higher likelihood that I'm gonna be able to compromise that uh, than just having remote, you know, connectivity to it in some way. Sure. Um, okay. Uh, so, and I think the last story before the internet weather is your weekly Mr. Robot Roundup. Now I haven't seen the latest episode, but that's okay. I'm going to let you. Tell I'll try me not about to it. spoil too much. That's I will it. try to focus only on the tech. Stan, if you want to go for a walk, I know you haven't seen the new station yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you. Uh, well, I'll, I'll stay here, but I'll kind of okay. doze off and zone out. All right. <laughs> think, think, close your eyes and think about Ida. Um, so, the, one of the first things that caught my eye in this episode, or caught my ear, I suppose, is Elliot's in the car and he doesn't have any of his hardware anymore. And he says to the guy who's driving the car, We need to stop at Micro Center. And I was oh. like, oh my God, because that's something that I think all the time. <laughs> so Micro Center is a pretty cool store. I think it's one of the right. few stores you can go and it's buy. It's like one of the few ones left where it's actually got like real computer equipment. Yep. Especially if you're like a home hobbyist, you want to build your own. They got a whole section for doing that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm sorry. And then they go to Micro Center. You. And it must be like the yeah. middle of the night, he's the only person there. But like you, if you've ever been to a Micro Center, you know what the signs look like. You know what the bins with the giant overflowing baskets of whatever it is you want to buy. I absolutely went to a Micro Center and filmed the scene there. So I was, hmm. I was kind of excited because I really do like the store. I wonder which one they did because, you know, they filmed that in New York, usually. In New York, New Jersey area. There is one, you know, right by us. Anyway. Yep. So we're so, in New Jersey. Yeah, but. So <laughs> it wasn't that one, okay. but um, I'm sure they found one somewhere around New York. Okay. Um, he picks up a can of Pringles, which for a second evaded me as to why he had bought a can of Pringles along with all this stuff. But then he goes home and he starts, you know, cutting into the can and taking out yeah, cables okay. and stuff, and he builds a cantenna, which was a very popular thing to do for a long time. Was if you couldn't afford yourself uh, a, a real metal cantenna, you would buy a Pringles can and you would do a little modification, a little bit of math, and you would build one. Now, he doesn't go ahead and do all of that. Like, it, it's a little bit cheated. Like, instead of, you know, you're supposed to, like, make that pigtail wire and stick it into the can at a certain length from the, the opening and all right, that other right, stuff. Right. I think he just, like, puts the, the cable in and, and keeps the, the wireless card at the end of the cable, which isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know if it would work. I, I imagine it wouldn't. But it was good enough for the show. 
So they fudged a little bit in my opinion, but the fact that they brought up the Pringles Cantena was pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of old school though. Yeah, it, it is. is an old school technique. And Especially if, nowadays, you can get well, much better at, You can buy right? those at Micro Center. So yeah. I was like, so why would you do that? Um, but um, another little thing, when he fires up that Cantena, one of the access points is, I did it for the lulls, which has a, little, it's a phrase that has a bit of a hacker right. story behind it. Um, he does do something really interesting and a little bit scary is he fills out a form and he faxes it from a fake phone number to the police and it's an exigent circumstances form which allows him apparently to request information about a phone number which you normally would not be able to get as long as you have evidence that there's exigent circumstances and the case that he uses is that someone is about to commit suicide. He needs to locate the person, so he calls up mm -hmm. the police and says, I am this badge number, I have this situation, I need you to identify the location of the phone in order to identify this person so we can save their life, which is a complete fabrication, but apparently it works. So that well, was a little- show, In the show it works. In the show it works. It's a little unnerving. I really don't know enough so about it. So there was social engineering really going on there Absolutely. So he had a badge number, and he, and he was speaking the lingo well enough that he convinced the person on the other end that he was a police officer and that he was making a legitimate request for this information. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, a little unnerving. Right. But that was, that was probably the, the creepiest thing of the episode. Um, but he does get what he wants eventually. He uses Spokio, which I think we've talked about, they've mentioned on the show before, which is sort of like a, a people search site. Right, right. Uh, and, he, and he's able to locate who he's looking for. And the one question I had that I didn't know the answer to was, um, Darlene makes a reference to a hackerspace on Canal Street. Um, and I don't know that there actually is one in New York City there, but it would be a really good place to have one because Canal Street is known for having electronic shops mm -hmm. and you can get all sorts of crazy stuff from the very cheap bins on Canal. So you know, it, it's, it's not accurate to the real world, but somebody thought about Close where enough, you would put one. Right? Yeah, right, right. So that was kind of cool. Interesting, okay. And I think I managed to not spoil too many. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, still. Okay, good. Awesome. Yeah, you yeah. really only talked about the tech, I think, and not the actual storyline. So I think I can still watch it, and not really. Have well, too I much think spoil. I'm going to enjoy it more now because of the commentary. Now you're right. Now, you can look now I'm going to be looking things. for the little the the cantena done yeah. incorrectly. <laughs> I have noticed this season specifically, they have really been showing a lot of screens as part of the and they'll have URLs or different things mm -hmm. that they're showing, which are actually visible. Yes, like they, they are, are creating real this. things out there on the internet you can go hit and they bring up menus and interfaces. And, and some of them that. are fun because, you know, if you've watched the latest episode, there'll be some reference to something that's going on in the story. Like there was one, one of those pages had a little chat room in it. One of the characters is like, so what was the name of that FBI operation again? And if you enter it in because you've watched the episode, it continues oh. on and tells you a little bit more. Oh, so I think okay. it's sort of a, an Easter egg for people who are watching the show and want to go and test out all the things that they're seeing. You know, you'll find stuff that's related and you'll get a bit yeah, more out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of little Easter eggs like that. Like there was another one, we probably already talked about this, where they had, uh, Elliot has like his little journal. This is early on, maybe episode two, and he's writing in his journal and there was like the a hand-drawn QR code. Yep which I immediately like scanned, uh, you know, I paused the TV and scanned it and it does take you to somewhere. I Can can't remember what it was. technologies. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So there's a lot of little, little things like that that they've put into the show to give, I guess, people who are really paying attention some extra things to go look at, kind of cool little side things to go look at, which is kind of fun. Um, uh, it's interesting, you know. I think they, they've done a lot of things with this show that is really kind of tailored to the security not only regular people to kind of get them into the into the spirit of it, but people who are really into it, give them a next level to go take it, kind of in a way. And you know if, I mean? if you don't know anything about it, it gives you an excuse to start Googling everything you see on the show. Right, right. Yeah, it's fun. Good show. So let's take a look at the internet weather report for this, uh, this uh, week. And this is the top 10 most probe ports and not any real big changes other than the 23 TCP has tailed down a little bit. And actually, I should have taken a, I don't, I don't think I put a chart together on this one, but I should have, only because there are some other more interesting charts. But we always talk about lots of scanning on 23 TCP Telnet. A lot of these IoT devices involved in that behavior, basically uh, going back to that story you had a little bit earlier with the uh, SSH keys and SSL keys. But it has uh, kind of tailed off a little bit, at least in terms of, again, way beyond everything else that's being scanned <laughs> by a large margin, but it's a little, it took a little, uh, little pause, a little bit, a little decrease there. 
Um, 22 TCP SSH uh, is also uh, another remote access type of port that is often scanned for and brute force password guessed against. 53 UDP, this is probably them searching for other devices that they can use as part of DNS amplification attacks. 3389 TCP is your remote desktop protocol. That's another one that if you have remote desktop protocol open to the internet, you really should rethink your strategies <laughs> um, because there's a lot of brute force activity going on against that as well. Um, and that's all of your Windows devices for the most part. You know, It's not on by default, but a lot of um, corporate desktops or anything that has like, what is it? Not the, win like the professional, I think, version of Windows uh, has it as a potential option to be turned on. So something to be concerned about. Um, you definitely don't want to have that open if you can avoid it. ADTCP, scanning for web servers, 443 TCP, also HTTPS. And then you've got your 445 TCP, which is your Windows file sharing, SMB stuff. 1911 TCP is the... Um, Niagara? Yes, Tritium, Niagara, Fox, uh, home, not home, uh, building automation. This is probably benign, uh, relatively speaking. Most of this activity, I would say, all, if, if not all, the majority of it is coming from, there's a couple of these guys out there who um, scan the internet to kind of get a good kind of census of what's going on and what ports are open and whatnot. So they're doing it for benevolent purposes to kind of get a good assessment of what's out there and what is open so that other good guy defenders like ourselves and whatnot can go look at those reports and say, hey, I wanna make sure I don't have any of these and I can close them down or whatnot. Um, but that's an interesting um, service. Um, we've seen that being scanned quite a bit and there is some of that out there. Um, and it's mostly for, I don't even know, it's like for, for automation of building processes, things that- Like HVAC? Yeah, like your HVAC, and I think even like lights and other things can be controlled by that. And then 123 UDP is NTP. Also, again, usually being used for amplification attacks most often. So then let's go take a look at the most sources probing. I always say this one's a lot more interesting to me because you've gotten a whole bunch of devices scanning certain ports at the same time or in unison, which is usually indicative of a botnet type activity. So 23 TCP, um, obviously, again, still the lion's share of the activity here in terms of the number of sources scanning. It's, again, less than it was before because I think the last time we looked at it, you know, the old Pac-Man, it was a little bit more closed the mouth. He's like on an open, wide open uh, mouth uh, position at this point. So it's a little bit down. It's still uh, way more than everything else. The 445 TCP is the next number two slot. The other one that I would point out in here that is interesting, I think, is the 2323 TCP. So this actually moved up 709 positions. And we'll take a look at that chart. That's a pretty steep climb. And uh, we'll talk about why that one might have gone up so dramatically, as well as who's behind it, um, or at least some inkling of maybe who behind it. ADTCP, not much news there, that's more web scanning. And then you've got some BitTorrent that kind of gets in here, 6881 UDP, that may or may not be, you know, the way BitTorrent works, they kind of, it looks like scanning, but it might not necessarily be, they're just trying to find peers. 4028 TCP, I got a chart on this one as well. This is that one that we're still kind of, I'm still kind of on the fence. Uh, the IDRA, uh, light IDRA botnet mm -hmm. family, it's a Linux-based piece of malware, similar to stuff that gets dropped onto these IoT devices. For some period of time, uh, at least maybe a couple of years ago, they were using 4028 TCP to some degree for their command and control operations, but I don't really understand to what degree. We'll take a look at a chart on that as well. And it might be a little bit clearer, but it's still, I don't have any concrete evidence. And then 3389 TCP is also in there again, remote desktop protocol. So you always see, I'm kind of surprised SSH isn't in here. However, maybe 2323 TCP kind of knocked it off the top 10. It's probably down there in the top 20 somewhere. I'd have to go look. So this is the 2323 TCP. You can see it went from pretty much relative obscurity of nobody looking for this to all of a sudden people really starting to look for it. It looks, there might've been like a little probe of scan flows from maybe one source or hardly any sources back around the August 23rd time frame, which might be interesting. 
And then it started to creep up here until it reached quite a peak here of about 90 million scan flows per hour with a number of scan sources around 12,000, which is not, it's not a huge number compared to the 23 TCP stuff we see, which is in the hundreds of thousands, but still it's pretty decent. When I looked at the, like, so part of our uh, uh, telemetry we get based on this report data is I can look and get like a listing of all the scan sources that are involved in, in this activity. So I did that, I got a list of all the source IPs and um, just taking like a handful of them, punching them into Shodan, lots of them came back as these Dahua DVRs. Um, so it looks like a lot of them are, you know, identified as that type of IoT device. Um, there were a couple of other um, IoT things in there, but it seemed like just randomly picking some, I was getting that a lot. And I probably looked at maybe 20 out of 20,000 or whatever it was, uh, or whatever, 10,000. They're definitely, whoever's behind it is using probably the similar toolkit to whatever the 23 TCP scanning is. Oh, I should probably point out, and we didn't talk about this, why are people scanning 2323 TCP? <laughs> so this is an alternate port for Telnet. Uh, 23 TCP is Telnet. So 2323 TCP has been used as an, uh, an alternate Telnet port. There has been used a, a little bit more, I think, with Cisco, especially Cisco routers. Uh, so there might be some corollary with that where people are seeking out uh, those types of devices with respect to Telnet. We know that there have been some recent vulnerabilities with uh, Cisco devices. The Shadow Brokers, I think one of you guys probably yeah. covered it. You probably did, right? They have a couple of vulnerabilities for Cisco devices. So it might be related to that. However, um, you know, it is a botnet that's behind this scanning. It's a lot of devices, a lot of these, like I said, the Dahua DVR. So, you know, it's not like a single actor trying to scan the internet at large. He's got a bunch of bots doing it, trying to collect up however many there are on there. And to what end, probably trying to get remote access just like it would for Telnet. But uh, something to keep in mind, if you have devices, you should really know what services you're exposing to the internet. We talk about this all the time. Um, and certainly, if you have Telnet exposed, don't. Um, try to use SSH. If you have this Telnet exposed on this port, it's not helping any. You're not hiding it from anybody, basically, is the story behind that. Uh, just moving it to another port that you think people aren't looking for doesn't necessarily prevent people from finding it, believe me. So also I would say filter and restrict access to these services if you to only, if you can, to only you know, network ranges that should need to connect to it. Don't expose it to the internet. But I was gonna say, if you can set up a VPN, that also might be a better way of doing it. Instead of putting it directly on the internet, if you can put it behind a VPN gateway right. and require that you log in before you even talk to the service, um, right, what helps. yes, right. That's, uh, that's a good point as well. And most of these Cisco devices, assuming that that's what most of this is about, uh, support um, VPN as a method of con connectivity to do that type sort of thing. So the next one that I did pull a chart on is this 48, 4028 TCP. This is DT server port, which I think is probably, um, actually I should probably go look it up, I didn't. I'm assuming it's related to some kind of BitTorrent thing, just based on the name of DT server. When I looked at the types of devices involved in this scanning behavior, and you could see that this is definitely botnet related because you see lots of activity and then you kind of see that sawtooth waveform where it goes off and then da, 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 they're going again. And then recently here back in like September 4th, it kind of skittered down again in this sawtooth waveform and then went up again. When I looked at this, again, it's a lot of these IoT devices. I saw, again, I just took the IPs, ran them through Shodan to try to see what do they have them. And a lot of times they'll have like the banner page, you know, in the Shodan data to tell you what it was. So I see a lot of ROS routers. I see a lot of micro tick uh, routers. So same types of devices again, all these IoT devices, people just put them on the internet and they're probably not, not changing the passwords to something other than what the default is. So if somebody's compromised it and now they put some malware on there. Beating a, beating a dead horse or wherever, a drum, you know, if you have devices like this at home or on your network, you should really make sure that it's not exposed to the internet. Um, and you should not use default passwords. 
And it's probably a good practice to reboot your home router every now and then if you can. I, I would encourage that because... Uh, I remember growing up, I had to. It was one of those older oh, okay. uh, little blue ones that every once in a while it started acting funny and you'd have to right. reboot it anyway. But Maybe those were getting hacked too. Yeah, my, you know, I have no way to prove one way or the other, but I tend to think it might have been. Yeah, if you're, if you're watching the program and every once in a while your home router, like your network connection and connectivity to the internet goes to heck uh, and you're like so slow and then when you reboot it, everything's better again. Then, and you're using the default password on your router of password or admin, um, you might want to change that. And maybe it won't get clogged up again like that. Because <laughs> what happens is it gets infected and now it starts doing all this scanning and it's, busy, it's too busy scanning the internet, doing bad guy stuff to actually uh, help you get to Google or wherever you're trying to go to. Um, so something to consider. Um, and then the last one uh, that we have here, which was not on the chart, but we did have a pretty significant spike in activity, um, and we've seen this before, is we're seeing scanning on 1720 TCP H.323. You can use the, this is kind of, it's similar to SIP for doing call setup for VoIP, but I don't know how much, I mean, SIP has really kind of been the, it's kind of like the Betamax and uh, VHS kind of thing. SIP is VHS, everybody went that route. Uh, but H.323 was around probably before SIP, I think, and it was used uh, you know, for the similar type of purposes. And there's a lot of devices that still support that, um, especially for video conferencing. I know that there's a lot of H.323 that comes into play. Primarily, we're only seeing a very few number of sources really involved in this scanning activity. There's two in the Netherlands and one in Lithuania. So in these other ones, we're talking about thousands and tens of thousands of sources scanning. This is just three guys that we're seeing. But it accounts for about 45 to 50 million at peak scan flows per hour that they're involved in. So they're pretty aggressively looking for these types of devices. I would venture to guess, if it was me and I was scanning for 1720 TCP, I'm probably trying to get into VoIP PBXs or other types of VoIP stuff so that I can maybe try to engage in toll fraud, uh, international revenue share fraud type activities, things like that. Um, that's just a hunch based on experience. So uh, something to be aware of, especially if you have PBXs or other VoIP infrastructure connected to the internet, maybe you're protecting the SIP interface really well, but maybe you're not, or not even aware that you're exposing the H.323 on your asterisk PBX server or whatever. So you might want to double check that and make sure that you know what's being shared and exposed to the internet, because um, they might not be coming in the, the expected path that you would expect. That's the show for today, though. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech channel. Uh, it's also on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, and please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. I'd like to thank you, Matt. Sure. Thanks, Stan, for joining us today. Uh, I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.